Hey guys, welcome to episode 47 of The Green Life. Do we need to be victims to disease? Well, the short answer to this question is no, we don't. And we're going to talk about this with our guest, Lauren Plunkett. Lauren is both a patient and an expert. She lives with type 1 diabetes and thrives on it. She's a registered dietitian, certified diabetes care and education specialist, fitness instructor, speaker, and award-winning author. Now, before we dive into the story that brought Lauren from being diagnosed to becoming an expert, let's just give Namawell a big shout out for the J2 Juicer, a machine I absolutely love to juice with every single day. So if you want to experience the same, go into the show notes and grab your 10% discount code. We also want to tell you we have a beautiful retreat happening here in Northern Portugal, which is fully inclusive and luxury. We are going to welcome you at the airport and take care of you until we drop you back at the airport after six days. So you're going to experience nature, beautiful plant-based food, beautiful therapies, and we even have an amazing doctor on board, as well as, surprise, Lauren. Lauren is joining us on the retreat as part of the team. After I invited her for the podcast, we got talking, and our vision for health and wellness of people is so aligned that it made sense to have her here on the retreat. So if you want to check it out, go into the show notes, go to the link. It takes you to my page on my website. Everything is laid out there. But if you have any questions, just get in touch with me and I'll be happy to assist. Get back to the episode now. I just want to really dive into this. We're going to go through Lauren's journey from the moment she was diagnosed at 11 years old up to now, all her struggles and what she learned. You'll be surprised. But at the same time, you'll feel so empowered by what she shares. So without further ado, let's go into the show. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for joining me on The Green Life. How are you today? Hi, Chantal. I am well today. How are you? I'm good. (laughs) Nobody could see us talking before. We had a good time. I know. We've got the giggles. But... uh... (laughs) But yeah, we can we can keep it lighthearted and have a little fun today too. That's okay. Serious subject matters have to come with a sense of humor sometimes. Exactly. And so we're going to talk about a big subject matter. We're going to talk about diabetes and your experience with type one and also how you transformed yourself from being someone that had to deal with having type one to actually educating people and then yourself to thrive. Now, let's start from the beginning. It's a very good place to start just so that people know your story. I also have your book here. Type 1 Determination, which I'm so excited about because it was really meant to be. My husband was in uh, in the States, and uh, so we got it together before the storm hit and like stopped all the deliveries. It was really, you know, divinely coordinated. So I'm very excited about it. I have actually not finished it yet, but I'm, uh, I'm halfway, and I absolutely love it. It's such a good story because it really comes from a place of authenticity, and it's yours, you know, like nobody can take that away from you. So let's start from chapter one, basically, your candy and coke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, that was a fun day because I I knew I had to run down to the post office as fast as I could to get that book off. And and I knew that that the weather was coming. So yeah, that was going to be the the Christmas adventure of a lifetime (laughs) to get that book out to you. Um, yeah, it, it's, it could be a, a long, a long story short, but diabetes is, is definitely not a short story. I was diagnosed when I was 11 and grew up overnight. You're diagnosed with a disease that um, people love to tell you, oh, a cure is coming, a cure is coming. But <laughs> the reality is, let's learn how to live. Mm. Uh, we got to get through this and was admitted to the hospital. I was super sick. 
um, was there for a few days. So together with me and, the, and my parents, we had to learn how to how to balance insulin and nutrition and go to the classes. And then you get sent home and you've got to figure it out from there. But um, but yeah, I, I was deteriorating. My body was disintegrating from not being able to utilize glucose appropriately. And in our given design, it just wasn't working that way. And that is how type 1 diabetes manifests is it's just this lack of insulin in the body. Insulin is kind of like a taxi. Um, so as glucose is moving from the bloodstream into the cells to be used for energy, I wasn't able to do this. I wasn't getting the glucose in the cells the way I needed to. So my blood sugar was skyrocketing. I wasn't absorbing nutrients in that way. So I was really looked like I was eating myself alive. That is how type 1 diabetes presents for a lot of people going into diabetic ketoacidosis, being super sick. It's more or less this metabolic meltdown that's happening in your body. And less than 10% of our world has type 1 diabetes. So of all, you know, of 100% of the cases of diabetes where we're looking at type 1 and type 2 specifically, the smaller percentage is type 1. However, this is increasing dramatically over the last few years, it has a lot to do with the autoimmune system, the changes mm -hmm. in the environment. Um, that's a greater conversation. But diabetes is becoming a subject matter, a disease that is touching like so, so many people. Your grandmother had it or you've got a cousin that has it. And ever since the book came out, I can't believe how many people that are actually just really close to me or one degree away where someone in their family has type one diabetes, or they say, yeah, actually my, my husband has type one. And I had no idea mm. <laughs> that that's going on. So that's where I'm finding out that there's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's surrounding me. And, um, one in three people in the States has pre-diabetes has elevated blood sugar. So there's a lot of educational opportunity in that. And through my story, that's the point of this book was being able to share what I've been through personally and then professionally, but also being to, able to uh, integrate my professional voice and the things that I wish I had known at the time, or maybe had I known, I would have made better decisions. Hmm. So before you went to Dr. Cleopatra's um, office <laughs> <laughs> and this is how you call it in the in the book how long was it before living a perfectly normal life to actually starting to really losing all the weight and feeling very thirsty and literally eating sugar and not being able to put on weight and not being able to retain anything mm -hmm. yeah that's an interesting point of, point of view really for people to understand is that when the body isn't absorbing any glucose, it's all you want. And I wanted the fastest form of sugar I could probably, I could possibly get, which is going to be a candy bar and a can of Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these are not health foods whatsoever, but your metabolism wins. Metabolism will outsmart you no matter what. And it's trying to keep you alive. And what I wasn't getting was any type of a sugar into my cells. And what our brain doesn't do is interpret that as we should really eat a healthy form of glucose, a healthy form of carbohydrate. But for me, it was an emergency. I need to get this in as fast as I possibly can. And I think that had been going on for a few months. I was in such brain fog and I was just a kid. So it's hard to recall exactly what was going on. But my dad had pointed out that I had this sunken eye look and sixth grade had just started. We were approaching Halloween. There's candy everywhere. It was kind of like, what's what's normal for this kid to be eating right now and what's really not and i was attached to the drinking fountain at school i was waking up during the night having to pee and was really thirsty so again it was just this massive dehydration and this sickness that came on over time but it can happen um 
it can happen quickly. It, sometimes there's an early catch where you just notice the signs and you see that something's off. For me, it, it was a bit gradual and we had just gone through a big move. We had moved across the country. I'd had a drastic change in my system. I was really allergic when I was a little kid. We had I had grown up in the mountains. I was around horses all the time and animals and I loved it and I wanted to be around them, but I would itch my eyes. I would itch my hands. There was something I was allergic to and we never really found out what it was, but it, it came through, it manifested as asthma. My mom describes this as the pediatrician put me on every drug he had when I walked into that office. Mm-hmm. Every drug, every new drug, every possible thing that you can put into a kid, I was taking. When we moved out to Minnesota, drastic change in environment, I could breathe. And who knows? Who knows really what that was about? But the deal was you finish the prescriptions that you've been prescribed. You finish taking what you you need. And throughout the course of the next four, five, six months, I no longer needed these medications. I could breathe. Things were different. And all of a sudden, I start getting sick in a different way. Mm -hmm. So there's some interesting questions to ask there about what was really happening in my body um, why did my beta cells stop producing insulin? And what was this, the purpose, the flood of medication perhaps in my system that could have potentially led to something like this and happening? These are questions that are asked in the in the process of trying to understand how type one happens, but we are all so individual when it comes to our immune systems that trying to answer the question as to how do we get type one in the first place is going to be a mystery. Type two is a different subject matter, but certainly, yeah, with type one, it was a pretty drastic fluctuation and my presentation was obviously really sick. Yeah. So a lot of people don't understand or know that type one is an autoimmune disease. You mentioned that though. Um, But I wonder when you learned later more about it, because I guess at 11 years old, you are not really processing what could have caused them more like, okay, I need to just deal with this because I don't want to die. And, mm-hmm. um, and you were very sick and you were about to die because you were already in um, ketone acetosis. So you were at the last stage before basically it could be the end. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure your parents also had to learn so much that the last thing anybody probably did is let's see what this kid has been given in terms of pharmaceuticals and see what the side effects of that could have been, how they could have affected you. But I'm wondering if you ever went back to look at the list of medications you were given as a child okay. and looked at that list of side effects and wondered if they could have triggered this autoimmune response. It's, it is, um, I think it's a, it's a question that's out there about polypharmacy and what can happen. There are pharmacists that work in deep prescribing because they look at the interaction with medications. I did do a little bit of research going back into what the treatment plan was like in the eighties for kids. Mm -hmm. And it was really aggressive, a really Mm -hmm. aggressive treatment plan for medications. Um, And I'm seeing a little bit of a repetition of this right now. This is a little bit off topic, but there's a big push for weight loss medications right now for people with diabetes. And there was just an approval for pediatrics for kids to be prescribed weight loss medications. And this is another thing that I want want to respond to, certainly, because I have very strong feelings about this. But but yes. In the moment of diagnosis, it was as a kid, I think kids are really resilient. And I've worked with kids on the day that they're diagnosed and families in that time. And kids are really resilient. Okay, what do we got to do now? Because I want to go home and I want to go back to playing soccer (laughs) or football. I know that we have an international audience here. So yeah, football, baseball, whatever it might be. Um, I want to go back to my thing. Let me do my thing as a kid. But you see so much fear in the patients that part of the job in talking about diabetes that I have taken on myself is being really positive about it. 
And this can be a shock to people. Why are we talking positively about diabetes? But what I have come to learn in my experience is that disease can teach you so much about your body, particularly type one. And if you embrace it in this way and you have a positive attitude from the moment of diagnosis, and that comes from the professionals that are presenting you with this situation, Mm -hmm. is to tell you that it's not about eating whatever you want. Just take your insulin because that Mm -hmm. is not the message we want to send. It's about here is your opportunity to learn how to be a healthy person for the rest of your life. Here's what's happened and here's what's not exactly working perfectly on your body, but perfect is a dirty word. Mm. We're not going to worry about dirty, dirty, you know, being, excuse me, not going to worry about perfection as we're looking at it today. And what's really tricky in diabetes as the chapters go on is realizing that you are judged by the numbers. Mm. Numbers were, I was judged by them. My self-worth was associated with my blood sugar value, my hemoglobin A1C and words like good and bad and how you internalize that. That is serious stuff. And now I'm approaching the hormonal apocalypse. I am 12, 13 years old. Things are starting to change in my body. So I'm not only dealing with the norms of just the, you know, female emotions and growth and what is happening here but I'm dealing with blood sugar fluctuations. And then I'm being told that I'm non-compliant. This language is so damaging and it's not just going on with kids. And of course there's all, there's all things out here right now and trying to raise awareness that language is a big deal. And, and talk is one thing, action is another. Mm. And the individual, the individual has to demand some of these changes. And that's what I ended up doing. But I demanded those changes of myself because I wasn't getting them from the medical system. Yeah, so obviously this sounds like um, your experience and all the changes happening in your body at the same time with your life changes to adapt to this new disease now came with uh, having to understand diet. And it seems like, as you said, they say eat whatever, just take your insulin according to the carbohydrates you're you're ingesting. But um, obviously that can create a bit of a bad relationship with food because now you are afraid of it, but you need it. So was that what was that experience for you? And do you feel that this experience you had is kind of mirroring in other people's lives with the same disease? And how do you, you know, work with it so that you can, how do you change yours? You're changing theirs. And now is your relationship with food right now? It's a very big question. <laughs> yeah, no, I love this. Thank you for asking that question because this is something that I, it's like, I feel like it's inside my heart and, and like beating to get out. <laughs> Talk, you know, opening up the conversation about building a healthy relationship with food as we are so immersed in diet culture. Mm. And it has been going on since the beginning. We're 100 years now of injecting insulin. We are 100 years in now of surviving type 1 diabetes. And from the very beginning, it was about carbohydrate restriction. And the problem with being diagnosed with a disease as a child or even as an adult, and from day one, two, three, you are taught to measure and count everything that you are eating. And what this can also roll into is books that say diabetic on them, diabetic cookbook, as if you are some other subspecies because you have diabetes. And I highly resent the word diabetic as a label onto my food. It should never be a term that's used. Diabetic as a label towards a person, you know, like I'm Lauren, I have diabetes, but please don't call me diabetic. I mean, like what? Like there's a lot of other things going on here. And it's just, it's the way in which we have labeled and and put a story on top of diabetes. That story that has evolved is carbohydrates are the problem. Yeah. When in fact, 
We've got research since the 70s that make it crystal clear that carbohydrates are actually the solution. Mm -hmm. But there is a difference between cookies, cakes, candies, and chips <laughs> from beans and whole grains and fruits and vegetables, which are staples of so many cultures that we, we have gone so far off the rails with food, trying to restrict instead of work with abundance. Mm -hmm. um, so building a healthy relationship with food and the counting and the measuring, it's the association is very tricky because we eat carbohydrates, we take insulin for the carbohydrates. Immediately, there's an association that can happen. And certainly for me, that association was a little bit tricky because should I then stop eating carbohydrates so I can take insulin? Mm. Certainly, right? That's a question that comes across. And there's some really scary research out there showing about uh, women, in particular women, manipulating insulin values so that they can lose weight. Yeah, it's scary. You sort of, you force yourself into that metabolic meltdown again by restricting insulin. Look at what happens. Your body starts to eat itself alive. So this is to do with the keto diet, right? Well, that's, a, yeah, that's another subject that, you know, you can certainly fire me up about, <laughs> you know, talk about healthy relationship with food. Uh, the term biohack comes up. I, yeah. I, that term, honestly, if we understood how our bodies worked as individuals, we wouldn't have to hack anything. We would know how to work with our system rather than mm -hmm. against our system. And that's the mm -hmm. whole process of building a healthy relationship with food. Do we know how to eat to treat? Mm -hmm. Are we eating to become efficient metabolic machines if we're trying to be athletes? Or are we trying to hack something that already knows how to operate? Mm -hmm. But we don't know how to work with it. We're always trying to fight against it. Yeah. I found this was this was kind of part this was part of my story with type 1 diabetes, is I felt like I was constantly, I was doing the work and getting absolutely no return. I never fasted my insulin. I never just decided I'm not going to eat today. So I don't need to take any insulin. You know, well enough that every body, even in a fasted state still needs insulin because our brain needs insulin, our cell cellular respiration, every part of us, insulin is super important for glucose regulation. And we're always using glucose always, always, always. So the healthy relationship with food has a lot to do with Understand what food does for you, which foods work work for you, which foods work against you. And in the history of nutrition and diabetes, we have constantly been looking at the foods that we can control versus the foods that would actually treat the problem. Mm -hmm. And insulin resistance is a problem across the board, type one, type two, prediabetes. So as I started to learn more, about the foods that would help me, it blew my mind that I had gone 15 years of my life without understanding that carbohydrates, fiber-rich foods, where the nutrients are, would have helped my body heal from head to toe versus just treating the diabetes. We're treating one thing when it comes to diabetes, control the blood sugar, when everything else in the body could go haywire. If we looked at this different, we would completely change our conversations around, around, um, complications. And so many conversations lead with fear. They lead with, if you eat that, you're going to lose your eyesight. It's one of the worst things to say to anyone. Leading with that type of fear. Are you aware of the complications of diabetes? I heard this lecture year after year after year. And nowadays my response is, do you think I was diagnosed yesterday? Yeah. You offer me solutions for how I can preserve my eyesight for how I can have 
efficient circulation? How about you give me solutions to how I can exercise without having low blood sugar? Can, can you do that? And there's not a lot of this individualized approach and solution offering in the world of, of type one diabetes and type two. Also, it's here's a medication, see you in three months. Yeah, so we're completely. Yeah, the human factor. We're completely getting lost on the human factor and what that individual needs. And then, of course, the research that is more solutions driven versus complications focused. Yeah, I think you nailed it on its head. I mean, you you know, first of all. Um, the language part is very important. It's also in your book. Um, that positive language also comes with, let's focus on giving people that have been diagnosed with a disease the solution to live their best life instead of making them afraid of what could happen because they're going to be so focused on that fear that then they get lost into, you know, let's make good choices. And what does that mean? Into the educational part, which can be a beautiful journey because I really mm-hmm. feel that, a lot of us that go, went into health actually all had a eating disorder or an ailment that we had to fix and and wanted to thrive from and not be a victim to. So um, I feel that that makes us obviously good practitioners because then we can actually relate to people, but also know that you can thrive. Don't worry about it. Um, instead of, you know, this negative messaging all the time. Mm-hmm. But also what you said about the insulin resistance issue across all diabetes and all the form, all the forms of diabetes, that's not really discussed much. And I think it's really important to do it. Like, for example, I knew I, I gave myself type 2 diabetes in a very mm-hmm. short time. It was a, the beginning of it. Um, but I knew how I was feeling, like horrible. And I had no energy. My body just changed like in months, just, I look mm. like a blob walk, walking around. I just <laughs> had no energy and this fluid retention, my liver felt toxic. I had pain on in my left side on my right side. I mean, it was a disaster. Mm. My, mm. Uh, I started having a lot of hormonal issues as well. And I, it got to a point where I'm like, I can't do this. And this, by the way, was after I had been really healthy for a few years, but just had gone through a lot of stress. And I did that to myself. And I am predisposed to having to manage my glucose level better. better. But I never understood what that meant before, up to when mm-hmm. I became plant-based. And even then, I it took me to get to this point in 2018 and 19 to actually come back from it and, and really rise to a point where I'm like, actually... I wow, this it blows my mind how easy it is to have an abundant life of food that I love and I don't have to worry about it if I understand what that is. Mm-hmm. And um, I reversed it in a year. Uh, so, you know, it's it's possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure, I didn't have to take insulin. And, uh, you know, I had to just manage very high, uh, not very high, but I guess higher than normal uh, blood levels, at especially fasting glucose and um, mm-hmm. A1C. But I did it all with food and nothing else. I didn't take any medication. So I know it's possible for most parts of the people because a lot of the population, as you said, have some sort of uh, insulin resistance, Mm pre-diabetes and diabetes type 2 mostly. And they don't know that they can reverse it because nobody tells them, right? And they don't understand actually what sensitivity to insulin means. They've just been Mm -hmm. told that you're resistant to it. What does that even mean, right? If you Mm -hmm. don't understand that you can make yourself sensitive. So... Um, when you found out, this is something I guess you did not really learn either at uh, your di- dietetics course, because again, the system, I, when I, when I went to nutrition, the first time nutrition school, the first time I was taught diabetes is a carb issue. You know, I only <laughs> learned that's not the case when I went and actually dig 
and studied different things, more holistic nutrition, and uh, really went to, to see a PCRM uh, now, like mastering yeah. diabetes is pretty big and they're very good. And the education there is different. But, you know, I guess you didn't learn that at school. So what triggered you to actually look into this and say, hey, what I'm learning is not really correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And even, you know, in your experience, and I think a lot of people listening, we have good intentions to be healthy. We fall for a story, story, we go into a path down the road of uh, this person lost weight doing this, Mm. or that's typically where it starts. I saw this commercial that said this program would really be great. And I want, and the feeling that a lot of people have is what can I buy into that will make this feel easy? And nothing does the work for us. Nothing does. No technology will do the work for us. Technology or a program or a meal plan what it should be doing is is helping us to make more informed decisions and make better choices. But oftentimes we don't actually learn how to make those choices. If all we're doing is following along, we're following the motions. We're just going through the motions of something, but we don't really know how it's helping us and we don't know how to sustain it for the long term. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these types of programs and these types of um, very programmed restrictive dieting, it has long-term effect that are rarely talked about Mm. when the short term is what makes that program money Mm. that short term that is huge in the states right now huge um and they and they make their own research i mean they show stuff that's not even and and it's just it's it's amazing that this is okay that it's possible to show people that like oh just do this you'll lose weight in the short term and certainly that's um that's where well i swear this program works and then they speak volumes for this. This stuff gets shared far and wide. And that mm-hmm. is how we have this flood in of misinformation about do this program. Um, and there are, are zealots of this. And yeah, it's it's the the loud speaks volumes. But the stories of people being successful in going through their own journey, losing weight or reversing disease or managing managing their health in a way where they feel in control of their bodies. Those are such beautiful stories because they're never just about food. Mm. they're never just about food it is that holistic impression of i had to change my mindset and the way i think about food and that is really what i had to do first is i had to look at the fact that nothing i had learned for years was doing anything for me Mm. i knew how to survive diabetes but i didn't know how to thrive i didn't know how to really live my life and i came to this awakening of is this going to be it for me (laughs) it's in my early 20s i felt horrible about my body um, super negative body image. I had a disordered relationship with food just in the fact that I didn't understand it. I didn't know how to really eat to and realize that food is nourishment is the solution. Nourishment is the most powerful thing that we can be doing for ourselves because it's the, one of the most consistent things we will do for our entire lives is eat, eat and sleep. We completely skip over these vitals when we go to a glucose lowering medication, thinking that is the only thing that's going to be able to keep my diabetes under control. We've completely missed the lifestyle mark. So I knew that lifestyle was my opportunity to change things. It was really an instinct, but it was obvious. I I would go at the time I was living in Florida and I would go to the beach and I would watch there, there was uh, I lived near an area where there was uh, volleyball competitions. And I would look at women that were playing and I would be like, I'll never look like that. Like that was my mentality is I will never be able to do that because I have this insulin pump on my hip or I, you know, these situations where I I created that space in my mind that this is where I have to be. And this is where I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And it's so far from the truth for most of us. I found some things that motivated me. Um, I happened to come across this story of uh, some some guys that had diabetes racing their bikes across America. And that blew my mind. Um, they're not real. No way is this real. And there were some Olympians that have type one. And this started to come out. And this was before Instagram and, and, and stuff where you're seeing so much of people's lives where you can search for people. <laughs> you, know, you can like find things now and really creep on all of that. But for me, it was in, in a magazine. It was in a cycling magazine. And I saw this and I was like, okay, um, hmm. If anyone's doing this, I know at least I could do a little more than what I'm doing right now. So I needed the confidence. I needed to see that there was an example of people doing amazing things. And that started to open up my mind to how did they do it? Okay, let me just walk a little further today and see if my blood sugar will stabilize. My blood sugar was the guide. It it was everything to me. And it was whether I had a good day or a bad day, but I wasn't able to balance what was going on with my blood sugar with activity, with nutrition, the timing, everything was so backwards. I started to do a little bit of research, mostly through the people that were motivating me and these stories that I saw of people with diabetes doing really cool things. And by understanding that they were just capable, I looked at my food and I thought, you know, I need to just eat more plants. And this was 13 years ago now, before we were using terms like this veganuary and go veg and all these cute terms in the plant-based world. I just knew that I'm not going to fear fruit because in general, fruit's healthy, right? Mm -hmm. I have to take insulin for this anyways. I'm going to start eating healthier. And my salads got bigger. They got more comfortable, or excuse me, they got more colorful and I got more comfortable. (laughs) The first thing I started to feel and adding more colorful plant-based foods was my digestion was just smoother. I didn't have a discomfort after I ate and in the process of monitoring my blood sugar and realizing that my digestion was better, I saw that my blood sugar was never spiking as high as it was before. I didn't know why. Mm. had no idea. I was going low all the time. So this is hypoglycemia. I was having low blood sugars out of nowhere. What this meant was that my background insulin, so you take two different forms of insulin, or if you're on an insulin pump, there's kind of this, there's a continuous drip of insulin. But what I've always done is you have a long acting insulin and you have a short acting insulin for meals. What this meant was the overall amount of insulin I was taking was way too high. Oh, and, and it was within two weeks or so. I still, I'm eating more carbohydrates than I've ever eaten in my entire life. And I need less insulin for it. And I write about this in the book that I thought I was a study of one. Like, I can't go around telling everybody that I have discovered the solution, <laughs> that I have discovered that practically there's a cure to type 1 diabetes. You can eat your way healthy. Whoa, what is this? I got to go see an endocrinologist. So I went and she looks at my numbers and it's like, wow, we got to adjust your insulin. And I had already adjusted my insulin on my own, but it was still a bit too high. And this was years before I became a dietitian and a diabetes educator. So I was my own experiment. And I was doing something right, but I didn't know why it was right. Fortunately, I had a doctor that supported this. And she said, do just keep doing what you're doing. So I did. And we adjusted the insulin. So in in the process of this, I had cut my insulin back almost 50%. Wow. I'd increased my carbohydrates. I don't know exactly by how much at that point in time, but I was eating freer. I felt nourished. I felt like... um, and I, I should go back and say at the same time I started increasing more plants, I stopped eating cheeseburgers. Mm-hmm. I just stopped eating meat and it wasn't difficult to do that. I had also identified with my morals about food and really 
came to the reality of the food system, where does it come from? I can drive through rural America and see cows grazing and realize I couldn't kill that animal. I'm not going to eat it. I couldn't kill that animal myself. And I think that might be something that resonates with a lot of people. Just get past the fact that you like the taste of cheese. I know. I get it. I hear I hear you. You have a thing for dairy. Lots of people say this. You grew up with dairy. It has a major effect on our brain. It's not easy to back off on these foods. But what I was learning was that I was becoming more insulin sensitive by eating less animal products. That was saving me money. My whole body started to change. I had more energy to actually exercise. We had already lowered my glu- my insulin intake. So I was more confident in exercising the extra 10 minutes. This became the ball that began to roll into the direction of who I am today. That's all I had to do was start. I had to have a little motivation. I had to have somebody that believed in me. And then from there, I got incredibly angry. <laughs> Yeah, finding the truth, right? Yes, very, very angry and realizing that why are we not teaching this everywhere? And it's not that complicated. It's really about getting back to basics and getting out of this absolute obsession with protein. But at the same time, why aren't dietitians being vocal about protein is everywhere? Meat is synonymous with protein. No, 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 no. Why? Why do we think that protein is meat? How has this happened? And that's the business of nutrition speaking loudly, not the practice. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the practice isn't evolving fast enough. And the practice should be saying, look at what fiber does to your system. Whoa. And look at what else it, it, it not just blood sugar, but it's doing all these other things. It has this effect on the digestive system. It's heart healthy. It's brain healthy. Wow. Short chain fatty acids. Like we can get all into all the nerdy science about this. But the bottom line is, What are we not eating that could be helping us heal and thrive? And what are we eating too much of? And that is crystal clear Mm -hmm. as to what we're eating too much of, how fast food restaurants have grown like crazy and they're spreading globally, which is painful to watch. Our intake of animal proteins has gone sky high with our intake of pharmaceuticals. They are all working together in this over-prescriptive, convenient lifestyle that we have gone into. But if we get back to the basics, we know what the solutions are. So we have the power of choice. That's what we have to do. And that's what essentially saved my life is getting out of the system and making my own choices. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I can totally relate to that and I can see it clearly as well. Um, Actually, you, you mentioned something that makes a lot of sense. Why isn't this happening in education, in practice? I mean, you know, as you said, Big Pharma and Big Agra are very much tied to one another. If they acknowledge that we're having too many uh, animal products and that we actually could poss- could easily live without them, um, you know, 80% of antibiotics go to animals. That's a big cut of, um, of profit for Big Pharma. But also for people with diabetes, especially type 1 and type 2 that are on insulin, you know, I never realized this, but insulin is not free. Even if you have type <laughs> one diabetes, it's not right. something that is given to patients. It's something that is very expensive. And the US is one of the ex- most expensive countries to get insulin in, which again, it's a form of racism, really, if we talk about it, because medical racism, because if especially for people that don't have a choice, 
because you mm. don't make your own insulin. You are holding these people ransom, but what happens if they can't afford it? Do they die? Are they left die? So um, it is a, I, I almost can't even talk about it. It's so upsetting. To, and it's not just insulin access. It's the technology access. There's this haves and have nots mm-hmm. in the medical system. It's even, you know, access to certain doctors. I, I called to make an appointment with my endocrinologist who I don't go to nearly as much as they want me to. I mean, whatever. <laughs> I think I've established I can make my own decisions. And I called in November and her earliest opening was July. Wow. So just to give you some idea of the whole approach to care is wait till something goes wrong and then and then what be admitted into the hospital um start from you know people are buried and then have to dig themselves out instead of being presented with these solutions then here we go from here and the cost of insulin and what's going on there with pharmaceuticals um is I am not an expert being able to explain this because it is it requires pages to unravel the complication of the payer system when it comes to insulin. However, if you have a job where you are insured and you have medical insurance, there's a good chance that your insulin is quite affordable. But the cost of that insulin out of pocket is probably or the cost the cost of out of pocket insulin without insurance is insane. It's like over four hundred four hundred dollars with paying for a vial of insulin you know, one vial insulin, which is going to get some people through a month. And by the way, it has an expiration date of usually 30 to 45 days. So that $400 vial for 30 to 45 days is absolutely out of the question for people that have to pay out of pocket. If you have insurance, it may cost you $60 or upwards of $100 for a three-month supply. When you go to Europe, you may walk into even in Mexico, Europe, you might head to a pharmacy that has that same vial of insulin and you paid $20 over the counter for it. <laughs> so it's definitely not, not expensive to make. <laughs> it, yeah. And it's not going out of style. Um, insulin is, you know, insulin is not a resource that we are pumping the earth for. Uh, it's something that's created and it's created. It's, 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 it's available. Put it that way. Technology also is another issue. Um, continuous glucose monitors, Continuous glucose monitors, in my opinion, is the greatest advancement of technology in diabetes. It is the greatest thing that we have had. It gives people so much power and insight into their own bodies. And there are people without diabetes wanting to wear them. This has been going on in Europe, waiting for approval, more, more so approval in the U.S. But there are programs that are promoting continuous glucose monitor use and then coaching that goes along with it. Um, I've got someone that I'm currently working with who's a serious athlete who uh, is showing signs of insulin insufficiency. And there's reasons around this. So body is operating very much like he has type one diabetes, but actually doesn't have that diagnosis yet. Um, This is another side of diabetes going on where insulin insufficiency can happen as a result of a surgery. Mm -hmm. But because he's an athlete, uh, this is someone who would strongly benefit from watching glucose monitoring all day long, busy job, busy life and training to be an ultra runner, cannot get a continuous glucose monitor because insurance says that you don't get one until you're taking insulin. So we're going to wait until people get sicker before insurance will approve a device that would prevent them from taking insulin in the first place. Yeah. What, and I'm just going to be human at this, what in the hell is going on? 
what is insurance thinking? Yeah. Are they thinking? Do they have any idea what they are doing to create a barrier for people that could incredibly improve their health with the use of this technology? And by the way, guys, it would probably save you millions of dollars. The same deal with employers. Employers and their premiums and how much they're paying lifestyle medicine saves tons of money Mm. when people actually go for it. So if if we would provide the infrastructure and the education, it begins from schools to offices to health fairs. These are the conversations we need to have. And I think when people see solutions and if they see stories like mine, they're going to get excited about it. Like, dang, this study of one, she did this on her own. I can do this. (laughs) There are people that can do these things. In fact, I had a client last year. I met her two years ago and she wasn't completely all in on the plant-based thing. She was like, you know, I'm hearing it, but I'm not too sure. And I know I need to change these things. And I know I've got family history here and I know I'm, I need to lose weight. And it's okay. I'm hearing all these shoulds and I needs. Mm-hmm. You're not ready. That's okay. I'm going to give you the resources anyways. Let's just talk through this. Didn't hear from her for a while. A year later, she came back and said, somebody in my office lost a hundred pounds on a plant-based plan. And I think they were using Dr. Esselstyn's plan. <laughs> and she was so mad. And I was like, hey, anger is a catalyst. I am with you. Anger worked for me too. (laughs) And what do you want to do now? I gave you the resources. I gave you the grocery list. We're going to simplify this. What do you want to do? And she absolutely ran with it. Lost 20 pounds in the first couple of months. And the conversation evolved into, hold on. This isn't about speed. We're not Mm -hmm. trying to win the weight loss contest here. Um, what, what are we really trying to get to? And she started to learn more. She started reading more. She started looking up nutritionfacts.org and PCRM. And these were things that I had given her. I want you to grow your personal toolkit. I want you to start thinking for yourself so that you can make choices anywhere that you are in the world about food, because that's what I did for me. I want you to not need me because you feel so self-sufficient and you know what resources to use. You know where to go. You know how to look things up and to find the resources here. And really just started with a grocery list, simplifying this down to the access that people need. So that's the you know, access, access to insulin, access, access to technology, access to food. So when we use terms like dietary racism, medical, it, that is, it's, it's been around. This isn't new. Mm. We have complicated this so much. And what we've completely missed is the human factor. These yeah. com- these com- conversations like this, let's talk about what you need and how we're going to get there together. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I know they've been around for a while, but it's I guess when you are realizing it, it's like yeah. truth trauma. It's like, what is going on? Yeah. And uh, like, why is that even, how is that even allowed? You know, it, it doesn't even make sense. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I guess, and, and you know, you do get angry. You do get angry because you know that there are some people that are profiting from the suffering of others and potential death of others. That's t- totally beyond me. Um, but let's talk about the CGMs for a minute because, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people that don't have, do not have diabetes are using it. And they're using it as biohacking, which we already established is not a way <laughs> to, to deal with your body. Um, and uh, I actually worked with a company that does CGMs uh, for that purpose. So they were not um, they were not sold to uh, people with diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, but rather to people that wanted to learn how to control their blood sugar. And one of the things that I have seen, uh, so I was just um, customer relations because I was basically doing it on weekends to pay for my uh, holistic nutrition course and uh-huh. um 
So I thought, this is great. I can just learn what's going on here. Um, and one of the things that I've seen is that people are very confused about sugar levels, very confused to the point that if they see a spike, they freak out, not understanding that that's a normal metabolic reaction to mm-hmm. in taking your food like you should see a spike and then you should see a set reset uh, within three hours but mm-hmm. so can we just talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that because i feel like a, pe- people are confused and also they get addicted to these kind of uh, cgms and they don't understand that you know again for a healthy person that doesn't have diabetes our metabolism can change because of hormonal issues because of environment because of season i mean you you name it and people are not very, um, I guess, flexible about that idea. For them, it should be simple, you know, black and white. It goes mm-hmm. up, it shouldn't go too, high, too high and it should be down. You know, like they're very confused. So what is the best way to look at, A, what's mm-hmm. a normal glucose level uh, for people that do not have diabetes? And then let's just ma- maybe mention people that have type 2 diabetes because of people mm-hmm. that are going towards that. And, um, and then, you know, what they should look at and what's normal and not so that they don't freak out about these spikes, yeah. which are normal. Yeah. CGMs are amazing. They give us so much insight into our bodies. They can teach us more about our bodies than we'll ever, we'll, we'll ever know. But the, the, the concern there certainly with monitoring blood sugar values is that CGMs are reaching more people than there are, than there are experts to partner with them to mm. talk about what's going on. And that is that that's scary stuff. Mm. Um, we're people are using a tool that they're flying blind with if they don't or at least they 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 fall into this place where i'm seeing something on the graph move and i don't want it to move what did i do wrong mm-hmm. and there's always the the next comment is always what did i eat and and so of course the carbohydrates are are going to get hell for this because that's what provides our system with glucose mm-hmm. but what the graph should look like on a continuous glucose monitor as you're looking at it is it should look like slow rollers. And I'm doing this on the camera here, but slow rollers. So up and down pyramid spikes, this can happen. And I'll tell, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but rolling in range is healthy. That is what a body does. Athletes that use CGMs are finding that they need to eat more carbohydrates than they were to begin with so that they have more fuel on board and they may be more comfortable exercising. This is endurance, aerobic exercise, exercising with blood sugar values higher than what they would be if they were not performing. Mm -hmm. This is just a matter of tracking performance measures and looking at how well did I do in these conditions where my blood sugar was. So if we measure this over time with something like a hemoglobin A1C and we're looking at three months, if your blood sugars are, are, are showing that they're rolling in range and we have values where under 5.6%, so prediabetes, 5.6, 5.7, upwards of 6.5. 6.5% is where type 2 diabetes is diagnosed. So if we're looking at blood sugar values over time, which is actually values that our CGM can show us is what's happening in seven days, what's happening 14 days, 60 days, 90 days. We have an impression of what our A1C levels are over time. As long as our body is coming in under 5.6, metabolically, we are operating the way that we should. Blood sugar values will absolutely go up when we eat. It is completely normal. The, The goal is to come back down into range. And for Someone that's trying to prevent diabetes or we're trying to reverse 
the resistance in type two diabetes and even for type one is we'd be looking at about two to three hours after eating if blood sugars are coming below 140. Mm. And I know people can freak out if they go over 100. That is not the way we want to think. That is perfectionism thinking. I don't know who taught you that. You will not get complications if you have a blood sugar go over 100 on any given day. Mm. This, this is really negative messaging that comes. I know it comes out of the type one diabetes community that if you spend any time over 120, you will, you will have complications. And we do not have solid research to show that A1Cs far below 7% are going to lead to complications any more so. That's why the standard goal is usually 7% or lower in the type one diabetes world. I love the saying, strive for 6.5. And then from there, it comes to consistency. And for, for my body, what's been really important to me is to be really consistent where my A1C is and to manage low blood sugars because low blood sugars are the things that kind of upset my life. Mm. If I have a high blood sugar, I know how to deal with it. But low blood sugars can pop in at very terrible times, like right when I want to head to the gym, right when I want to teach cycling classes, you know, things like that can happen. So when you when you have unexpected events with your blood sugar, that is a teaching opportunity. That's a moment to learn. I've been monitoring my blood sugar for 29 years. Mm-hmm. So for someone that just started to do this, we have to be careful. You need a coach. Please yeah. get a coach. Yeah. And there isn't like a standard CGM training going out there for everyone. And, and that's also another thing for anyone thinking about wearing a continuous glucose monitor that doesn't have diabetes. If you can get one, send me an email. Honestly, you, you got to have somebody in your corner to help you decipher what these numbers mean, but also think, how is this going to help you? What are you trying to get towards? To me, it makes sense for athletes, for people to have big goals. Um, they're triathletes. They are absolute machines. I mean, these are people that are training like crazy, right? And they probably have sponsorship and all the rest. And they're going to have coaches. They have so many people to be watching and relying on them. They're going to be cared for. But for people that are just trying to get a CGM for weight loss purposes, oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. I saw yeah. any of them. Yeah. That that's we we've got to think like, is this safe? Is this a safe place for you? So many people I've spoken to that have goals to lose weight, they have food trauma. They have something deep down in their bodies that they have been pushing down. They've been using food to do it. Mm-hmm. And if we can get to that, you know, pull these sensitive threads to say, Tell me what your relationship with food is like. Has anyone ever asked you that question? Tell me why you don't eat beans. What's going on there? And I once had someone say, I was locked in a room when I was eight years old with a plate full of beans and I wasn't allowed to come out of that room until I ate them. These are the stories that can come out when we really talk about obesity or with weight loss trouble. What's really going on there? It is never just what we see on the surface. There is so much more to it. And that's why weight loss medications drive me crazy is because have we done our full assessment? Have we done the work to understand what this person's barriers and challenges are? Because until we have, it's not enough. A pill is never enough until we go further to understand things. Just like, oh, here you go. You can buy into our weight loss program. We'll send you a CGM. We'll give you a coach who just has been through our 10-day training. Mm-hmm. and go ahead. And what's going to happen is it's going to be um, a project of restriction. It's going to be carb confusion. It's going to be thinking that fats and proteins are the solution when in fact our body can become more resistant over time that way. And it does take insulin to deal with high amounts of fat and 
and insulin, excuse me, fat and protein. And what you end up seeing on a CGM is this, this kind of slow movement of a, of an elevation. If you don't eat carbohydrates, if you have a high fat, high protein diet, but then there can be hang time. So over time, what happens is your average blood sugar can actually increase Hmm. where once upon a time, maybe it was 120 and now your averages are starting to go up because high fat and high protein cause this resistance over time. And what a chronic dieter will do is just continue to cut carbs, cut them and cut them and cut them yeah. and remain completely frustrated, quit that program, regain the weight they lost, and then jump into another program later. Yeah. So don't want CGMs to fall into this um, pattern because they're such a great tool when used when used smart. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, and and that's another thing that I saw that really upset me with this company is, um, you know, I I we were not allowed to give our opinion, even if I'm I'm a nutritionist, yeah, I could, because I'm just representing the company at that point. Um, so I very open endedly pointed people towards mastering diabetes and PCRM and said, no, you don't have. Uh, diabetes, but I'm just, um, you know, sharing some very good information about insulin resistance, which can uh, maybe be a concern for you if you are using CGM and you want to not have spikes. But I saw many other uh, of my colleagues that were really pushing this paleo, keto, and it's like, oh, the fats, people, the fats. <laughs> yeah, they missed the big picture. They're totally yeah. missing the big picture on diet pushing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a a carb shaming environment, and this wasn't in the home. This was from the clinic. Mm. <laughs> this is from the people that are supposed to know how I can have a better life. Mm. And instead, it was all about do this so that when you show up next time, your average blood sugars are lower, and that makes the clinic look good. Yeah. Do you ever do you have a go to events where you are faced with? you know, doctors and experts that will still regurgitate the same carbs are bad. And, and you actually like, dude, <laughs> I'm a living proof. That's not the case. I know it's, it, that's interesting. I, I think I mentioned this in the book about how I've, I've, as a professional, I've had to really wrestle with the personal meets professional. I'm diabetes 200% of the time. If I'm you know, clearly on my, on my own with it, but then if I'm working with someone Fortunately, particularly in the last year, I've met so many more colleagues that are like-minded, which is incredibly helpful. I finally have support around me, people that have done the work themselves. They have also, a lot of them have broken off on their own and they're doing their own thing because we don't feel very supported in the standard medical system. When we hear this messaging, I'm not one to keep my mouth shut <laughs> either. That's how the book was created is that I wrote down all the things that I knew I shouldn't say. And I ended up working in the same pediatric clinic where I was diagnosed. And that was never the original wow. plan. I was like, yeah. oh my God, am I going to walk back into those doors? And the whole place had looked different in the 20 years that I hadn't been there. But I come back in and I see that nothing has really changed. changed. There hasn't been that much evolution here. What is going on? And I was kind of like in shock. Like, why haven't the dietitians haven't evolved? The teaching hasn't evolved. I mean, I was really struggling in college because there was messaging about patients, about what life with diabetes looks like. And I wanted to stand up and scream. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't have to look this way. And then I want to pop off and say, how about all of you come to my spin class? I'm the one with type one here. And I bet you can't hack it. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's where I had to manage my personal with the professional, because that's not exactly something you can walk into a conference and start okay. shouting about. <laughs> and I actually worked with an endocrinologist 
who now I'm reading the notes. Now I'm on the other side of the exam table, right? So I'm I'm still the kid with type one in this room, but yet I'm the professional and I'm the one giving the advice. And I had to really think about what's my communication style going to be in here so that I'm still very evidence-based and no one can argue with me. Mm-hmm. I have to be evidence-based here, but how am I going to change and reframe the communication from what's been going on since the beginning of this carb-cutting issue in the world of, of diabetes or our carb counting, which is still relevant, but the shame should not be. And as I'm reading notes from endocrinologists, I see some really great positive things coming through, which turned me really on into the more therapeutic conversations of, of mental health and diabetes, mental health and chronic disease in general, and how we think and how our thinking affects our physical body. That became a huge impression. But what I saw were were comments, eat all the protein you want towards children who are overweight, eat all the protein you want, cut the carbs. And I just about lost it. I mean, that was, that was kind of in my final few months of being, being quiet as a vegan. I didn't know I was going to get a job Mm. and I didn't talk about being plant-based as a solution. I was actually attacked a few times on, um, as people in the in the, the clinic started to learn that I am plant-based on, oh, you're pushing your agenda and these kind of things. And I was like, there's a difference between teaching parents how to eat healthy and then telling them that cheese and meat sticks don't have any carbohydrates in them. This is the stuff that has to change because this isn't what's working. Because three months later, we're going to have a conversation with these parents because that kid's cholesterol is going to elevate. Mm. That happened all the time. the time. And we did it to them. That's my issue in the bigger picture here is we are teaching people potentially how to get sicker over time with pushing animal proteins just because they don't have carbohydrates in them. And that is serious. And, and maybe it sounds like an accusation, but tell me that that hasn't been happening. I mean, that that's kind of where I got to. So I tried my hardest to, how do I change my language and get communication to be effective? How can I make friends with everyone? The screaming vegan doesn't make friends with everyone. Mm -hmm. But someone that says, here's here's what you're not eating that has the potential to really help you. So let's look at what you're not getting. And then I'm going to point out the foods that are probably making this worse. And this is going to surprise you because your whole career here in your life with diabetes has been telling you that the carbohydrates elevate blood sugar. But actually, we have to make a separation and we have to show you what creates the resistance over time, what might be causing some inflammation in your body, what's not making you feel good, what's raising your cholesterol, what links to your mental health and why your digestion is not great. Mm -hmm. All of those foods have the same thing in common. Mm -hmm. They come from animals. Yes. (laughs) And we've been pushing those animal products on people for decades. Yeah. It's time. It's time for that wheel to break. So when it comes to such facts, really, when we come to animals, but what's your take on uh, things that come from the plant world that have high saturated fats like coconut, palm, to a certain extent, cacao or cocoa, but um, mm-hmm. mostly I would say coconut oil and uh, and palm oil are the biggest ones. What's your mm-hmm. take on those? Yeah, you know, I think of, I think of plant-based foods as like it's kind of funny if you think about the old food pyramid that's completely irrelevant now but there this is this foundation of plant foods that we should be eating the most of right these whole plant foods and i love how they're so culturally relevant like so many of our cultures have these foods in common 
particularly in the US, we are this melting pot and we could be learning so much from each other from the foundation of the soil that we came from. <laughs> but we don't do a lot of that. Although we love to, you know, there's lots of different types of ethnic restaurants here and people love to eat that way. But if we look at the beans and the grains and the fruits and the veggies and the nuts and the seeds and the things that are coming from the earth and the trees, this is sort of our foundation. So we focus on this because so many people are just missing that foundation. And as we work our way up, certainly if we get into the fats, we get into the oils, people can get really fixated on those things and they completely miss the opportunity to enrich their diet with all of these other foods. Yeah. And I, I often hear this stuff about coconut oil and, and coconut oil is not a, like a health food. Oil mm-hmm. in general isn't a health food. It's not really nutritiously rich in anything. It's can add flavor. It can do something to cooking, but so can veggie stock. <laughs> you know, there's, there are things where we can create moisture if that's what we're going for here. And we can create more flavor with spices. We use plants to eat plants even better. Um, so yeah, that's really my take on, on oils, particularly coconut oil. It's just a huge fad. Someone's making money off of treating coconut oil. Like it's bulletproof in quotes. What a joke <laughs> that is um, bulletproof until your heart says, please help me. <laughs> Like I can't deal with this anymore. Um, And it's a quantity also. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using a little bit of olive oil. Um, It's the grand picture. It is, are you eating lots of abundant, whole, healthy plant foods and you put balsamic and olive oil in your salad? I have no issue with that. And I hope a lot of people don't beat themselves up over those things just because low fat programs are big in the plant-based world. But how low fat should someone go is on an individual level and you have to make sure you're getting your omega-3 yeah absolutely I mean, yeah I've, I'm, I've, I've cut out the oils but I, <laughs> I have all fats so I still would do dressing for my salads with tahini and I really love them and nuts and seeds I would put them into porridge and so I mm-hmm. yeah I tend to just go for the whole ones instead of but the oils that's because I have a very heavy hand I mean I, I, <laughs> yeah, I was me just too. like I can use olive oil like it's I'm anointing the food <laughs> so. yeah 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 me too I um I've I look at my fat intake and I'll track my nutrition. You know, that's a safe place for me. For a lot of people, tracking is not a safe place. And I hope they think about that before they just start tracking all their foods mm-hmm. is that I will check every once in a while. And fats are a challenge for me, certainly, because I a scoop of peanut butter <laughs> will turn into four scoops of peanut butter. I love peanut butter. I like, yeah, I like nuts and seeds. I start most of my mornings off with like high fiber toast with peanut butter. I'll put a scoop of that in my oatmeal, but it's really sustainable nutrition. And I'm an active person. So if we get down to an individual level and we understand what does our calorie intake really look like for the body size that I want to maintain, what's realistic for you? And fats have their way into our system. Fats are important to support our hormones. They are still important. And I have worked with people where the ultra low fat programs are not great for them. Mm. They want to be plant-based, but they have to figure out the balance because it ends up shifting, shifting your mindset from one method of restriction to another. And that is where we got it. We got to open up that conversation. Is this okay for you? Yeah. Is this a safe place for you? Because you still haven't received or you still haven't achieved the balance that you're looking for. And I recently met a woman who told me she's been dieting since she was 12 mm-hmm. and she's in her fifties. I think a lot of women have that story 
why. Let's get under, I want to get under your skin to understand where this came from. Where are you now? And how can we shift this into a positive relationship with food? And if it includes pets, it includes pets. I don't want you to feel guilty or bad about this. And we have to get to that place before we see results on the blood test. Yeah. I had to do a lot of internal work. Um, it, it was kind of an accident. I was doing internal work because I decided to buck the system and eat in a way that felt right to me. And then I come across the research and that's when I decided to become a dietitian so that I can maybe help a few people teaching forward what I've learned here. But I also wanted to break the wheel. I wanted to blow this out and make this conversation bigger, make it happen and hit these international conferences and start talking about this through what I've learned. Oh, and by the way, Another 60 references or so in my book. And every single one of those references is going to have a whole bunch of references to back them up. So we're not on an island anymore. Yeah. Um, And that feels so good as we move forward and ex- expand this to more people. And hopefully. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. More accessible. Yeah. So you said that you are a fitness instructor, uh, indoor cycling. And do you also teach yoga? I do not teach yoga. You don't. You I just like yoga. to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I take yoga. Um, yoga, Pilates, breath work. I've, I've gotten back into that. I had, I actually dislocated my shoulder three or four times a year ago. <laughs> Long story. <laughs> and I couldn't really do a lot of yoga. I didn't trust my shoulder. It was sort of semi healed, but yeah, I've been back to three yoga classes in three weeks and I absolutely love this instructor. I got to tell everyone, um, if this resonates, this is the first time that I've ever been to an instructor that doesn't look like a ballerina. Mm. And it makes me feel I can focus on my breath now for the first time ever yeah. instead of how I look, because I have never looked like a yoga instructor in my life. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not this super long, lean, coordinated person. I might look a little bit goofy. And when they come over and they shift my body, it makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong. Like, am I not in the right position? But what I love about this instructor is she says, move where your body will take you today. You know, let your body move into this position today and just do what feels right. And and there's more about gratitude there. And it's a, it's a major check-in point, um, this type yeah. of class. So if you've been to a yoga class or a cycling class and you didn't love the first one you took, keep trying. You will find yeah. somebody. It's all about the instructor. It's all about the instructor. So I, I, I teach yoga and there are like a bunch of things I cannot do. My body's just not going to go there, <laughs> period. And so I, at the beginning, when I started taking yoga just for myself in, um, in like 2007, I just, I gave up because I thought, well, I don't have the body. I just don't have the body. And it took me a few years to go back into it. Um, also, I come, you know, from eating disorders, so I never had a good image of my body. I still struggle with body dysmorphia. I have to always check in with myself, and and it's much better now because I do a lot of other internal work. But I, I generally, yeah, just looked at these wonderfully lean, lengthy, like everything looks good on them when they do it, and it's like. <laughs> just no and then mm-hmm. as I started becoming more plant-based there's something that happens with the kindness that you show other beings through food that reflects on you you kinder to yourself just happens and mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to study to become a yoga teacher which I did and then to be honest with you and I, I hate saying this because it sounds obnoxious and I'm not trying to be I promise you but I am actually one of the best in you know <laughs> because I like to take my own class. <laughs> Not because I can do amazing things, because I can't, but because I 
just I have this thing that I've developed to connect to my body that I allow people to do the same, yeah. whether they go deeply into something or not. And I also make things creative and I merge with bar and Pilates. So it becomes yeah. also a workout and there is everything. And to me, that is much more approachable you know because a lot of people may feel like I did that go into a class and they just don't like the image they see especially mm-hmm. if they the class with mirrors I tend not to really want to teach with the mirrors but yeah. sometimes you know if you're in Pilates studios you do because alignment is very important in Pilates for example or bar um, but you know you you have people that don't like what they see and you need to teach them to not mm-hmm. even look at it or if they mm-hmm. look at it to be kind enough to worry about nothing other than focusing on the breath and just allowing their body to be in a way honored for whatever is offering today. So Mm -hmm. if today you are going to touch halfway down towards your toes and you're not getting to your toes, that's okay. You're halfway to your toes, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and well, that self-awareness is so beautiful because that's how you become better at what you're doing Mm. is self-awareness. Like looking at clips of myself when I'm speaking, like, Oh my God, (laughs) like that really is a, it's a vulnerable, super vulnerable space. Looking at yourself when you are working out, talking, whatever these videos might be, um, it's not a self-centered action at all. It's, it's self-awareness. It's the same way that, w- that I look at nutrition. If we are looking really deeply, really internally with either our physical movement or our emotions around food, we're going to find answers there. We're going to mm. find solutions and we have to be willing to go there. And I know it's dark stuff. Like that's some shadow work right there. <laughs> it's going yeah. in big, big into why do I eat this way? How does it affect my mind? How does it affect my emotions? And then a greater question is, how do I want to move my body? Mm. All right. So it's a complimentary question. How do I want to move my body? Because movement to me, it's, it has to match your personality. Yeah. And what you're doing, you don't have to go to boot camp. That's not your thing. It's not, you know, I'm going to lose weight. If I go to boot camp. hold on. Weight loss is a side effect of finding your, your balance. happiness. Yeah, yeah. Finding your balance and what you love to do. So how do you want to move your body? Do you just want to go hiking and get lost in the woods for a while? Absolutely. I support that. (laughs) Go breathe in that air. um, And all you need are shoes to do that. So yeah, just movement is such a beautiful thing. And there's so many ways to be able to move our body. There are modifications to how we can move our body. And that's what you found me too, because I can't do all those things. I'm kind of clumsy, so I can't do all the things. But if I breathe better and, and have less focus on what does it look like to other people when I treat, do tree pose or pigeon, because I'm ridiculous and pigeon, <laughs> is I can breathe through this and understand the point. Why am I here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have I, how well have I nourished myself today? Maybe I don't need to think about food right now. I'm off the clock. I can just breathe here. <laughs> And get myself through this hour and will feel better at the end of it. Oh, totally. And exercise in terms of managing a sugar or, uh, you know, insulin uh, resistance and uh, managing diabetes. How important is it? <gasps> oh, the holy grail question. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. N- nutrition and exercise, they make the world go round. Um. And yeah, it's a simple term, right? But, but finding our, our way in the, in the partnership of that, um, insulin sensitivity is what we're looking for. That is really our goal. And that's why I use the term efficient metabolic machine is that insulin resistance is a problem that happens in a lot of different conditions. It's not just that mark of diabetes, but it's a hormonal situation. Also polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, there's a lot of women that I have 
I have seen incredibly terrible advice in the world of nutrition coming from doctors about how to treat PCOS. Um, I've reported carb cutting, carb cutting mentality coming from doctors towards women with PCOS, exactly the opposite of how they should be eating. Mm. You're cutting carbs. You're eating a lot of protein and fat. That is not how we are going to reverse the resistance and enrich this person's life. Mm. So if we're talking about the, the, the reasons insulin resistance happened in the first place, we also want to talk about the solution as to how can we become more insulin sensitive, certainly through nutrition. We have got all sorts of conversations to have, but when it comes to movement, this is how we sensitize that cell further. So if we go back to like um, middle school class and we remember drawing the organelles inside of a cell and we drew this little thing that kind of looks like a potato and that's the mitochondria and the mitochondria is our little powerhouse and it takes in glucose and turns it into energy. Those mitochondria love to work. Our cells love to work and glucose is what makes them work. So another argument for the healthy, slow absorbing complex carbohydrates is it makes our body work more efficiently. And that actually supports longevity. Having more mitochondria, the longer we have these guys, um, I, I can like totally go down the nerd like tunnel talking about mitochondria because it's so fascinating when you get into like, hold on, I can eat my way healthy. I don't need to buy all this topical stuff to like necessarily preserve my skin. But if I eat in a very diet full of plants, I'm probably going to be improving my digestive system and the rate of absorption also so that I'm using my nutrients wisely. And if you're doing that to kind of regrow a healthy body on the inside, plus you are exercising and elevating your heart rate and having heart rate variability so that you're breathing heavy sometimes, you're bringing it down. You're just taking a walk one day, you have run up a hill the next day. That variability makes our body so much stronger. That's where sensitivity comes from and it changes the brain. Mm. We are happier when we move around. Mm. Um, we are happier when we're in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. These are like just <laughs> basic needs of humanity, right? Yeah, I'm in Minnesota. It's very gray <laughs> right now. <laughs> is it raining still for you? It's still raining. We had a couple <sighs> of days of uh, bright. Oh, I can't. I don't even. I don't even know. I feel it's been months. I'm just like I'm over this. <laughs> I know it's coming. I think these are the moments we have to have to appreciate that. Oh, the sun has come out. I'm so much more productive in the winter because of that. During the summer, when the sun comes out, you know, I've got this season. I am just like I'm going outside. See ya. I wish we all kind of had priorities like that. Like if we lived in a system where I, I could snap my fingers and the clinical system would change into something so much more holistic that people would learn that. Well, from the beginning here, I should think about preventive health. How do I want to age? efficiently how do i want to become a better person and healthier as i get older they would walk into a clinic that not only has your medical support but it might also have a yoga studio it might also have acupuncture it's going to have therapy mm-hmm. it's going to have a range of things to treat the whole person because that is the world we live in we are not one note human beings that just need to cut carbs to save our blood sugar values in the moment it doesn't work that way we have to look at this bigger picture um and the bigger picture is is mind body spirit connection everything is affected and our food choices and our exercise and our movement they are the basics and they're so powerful all of those little things that i did to eventually they saved my life Mm -hmm. um i i can't it gave me community 
gave me more of a purpose. I'm totally rattling off like the principles of the blue zones right now, but that's really what it was. I've sort of created my own little blue zone, (laughs) you know, inside of my body with these choices that I have made. And, um, you know, going forward, these are the things that I want to, I want to support this. I want to support the creation of this holistic environment coming alive. It's so possible and and people want it and they may not even know how well it's going to work for them, but it's coming. Yeah, totally. And how do you feel about intermittent fasting? You know, I I think the interesting thing with intermittent fasting is that um, if we work our way backwards, my first question is, are you sleeping? Hmm. How well are you sleeping? Because that's nature's fast. Hmm. And are you down for seven, eight hours a night and you're sleeping through it? You're probably not eating a few hours before you go to bed. And you may not eat right when you wake up. All of a sudden, we're looking at a 10 to 12 hour fast. Mm. And that's nature's fast. And if we are, um, it it, it can change for someone who's working a night shift because they're not really working off of the nature of circadian rhythm. I, I look at that research and these are my first questions is how are we working with the nature of the body, first of all, because now we're just inventing another program that people are going to take and they're probably going to go the wrong way with it. Hmm. and are you just skipping meals to eat less Hmm. or do you feel like digestion begins really well for you four or five hours after you wake up that's okay but what we have to make sure is that you're getting enough nutrients throughout the entire day that your body needs Hmm. otherwise you are shorting your nutrients so that you can cut actually just cut calories in order to lose weight so what is fasting really and the research is so controlled. You know, it's such a controlled, it's same with low carb studies. It is such a controlled environment that when people go into reality, do you really want to fast for the rest of your life? Or are you just someone who likes to eat between noon and 6 p.m.? Let's just not label what you're doing. Let's figure out what works for you and move on. Yeah. And then I come back to the question, how's your sleep? Yeah. <laughs> let's sleep. Oh, is your nutrition affecting your sleep? Now we're going to talk about your nutrition. Mm. So we're going to keep digging until we get to the root of the problem and figure out the solution. And by the time we get there, we've removed every, every thought of diet mentality. We've uncovered the history of why a person has probably gone into dieting over and over and over again. And that is where we, we make it very specific and individualized into the approach of what works for you. What does your schedule look like? And for a lot of people, fasting is just not, it's never going to work because of their work schedule. Or they'd suddenly go into the day thinking they're going to, their first meal is going to be what lunch might be. They accidentally skip it because they're busy and then they don't eat till five o'clock in the afternoon and have a binge. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things I'm really careful about when it comes to this fasting or restrictive of any restriction of any kind. True. I, I, so when, when we started talking about intermittent fasting, generally my first thing was, but we, we are meant to fast when we sleep. Um, that's why we call breakfast breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, I guess it's been looked at because I, one thing that I've noticed a lot of people are eating later and later and also don't eat, um, they eat straight before going to bed, which is a probably what has been now causing this, um, I guess this platform to notice the difference between somebody that doesn't do that versus somebody that 
does do that. So mm-hmm. um, if you're eating three, four hours before going to bed and you're going to bed on an empty stomach, now all of a sudden, by the time you get up after it's it's 12 hours that you haven't eaten, uh, as you say, in the morning, you might do other things. Like I like to work out in the morning and on an empty stomach, just with a, I drink, the first thing I drink is a big glass of water, mm-hmm. about, about a liter with lemon, warm, and it. I want hydration and that's how I'm getting it. And mm-hmm. then I work out. Um, mm-hmm. So by the time I actually get to the food, because also I have to take care of the dogs and everything else, um, it's been 16 hours that I haven't really thought about. But there Mm. are mornings that if I need to er like eat earlier because I'm hungry, I'm going to listen to my body because Mm -hmm. ultimately I I still did 12 hours of fast because I always try not to go to bed um, at least, you know, without having four hours where I am empty stomach because I just don't like going to bed. I don't sleep well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess if you do that, you intermittent fasting anyway. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like, well, d- that's how, how our bodies are designed to, to mm-hmm. not be eating all the time. Yeah. So the time that you are eating should just work for you. And that's yeah. all we, we call it. And, and that's what we come down to terms of what is nourishment? What does nourishment look like to you? Um, interestingly enough, in in the case for weight management, people that are trying to lose weight, they've they've been frustrated with their weight their entire life is that as I, as I start to, to, to dig deeper into where, where, where are you at today? What is your story? How did we get to this point is I find that their hunger signals are really thrown off. They mm-hmm. may not really feel hunger. Or they don't really know when you're hungry. And it's one of those questions I'll ask, do you get hungry? Do you sense this? And they didn't eat, you know, they, at some point during high school, as they got older in teenage years in school, they um, would just go to school and not eat all day. Mm. Come home and eat a ton of food. And I know this is a habit and a lot of, this is a huge, I think this is a huge problem that doesn't get talked about enough in the the culture of teenage girls is grouping together and not eating all day and then going home and feeling like you're in a safe place together. And what it is, is it, it has a lot to do with anxiety and mental health. And I'm not mm. eating because I feel so anxious and my stomach hurts all the time. It screws up your hunger signals and those are hormones. Feeling hungry, the nature of it. When do you feel hungry? When do you feel full? And in complicating the response with these hormones, this is where weight management can be even more of a challenge. And when I find out what someone's schedule is like, oftentimes I'm telling them, let's try shifting your nutrition earlier into the day. We're just going to start shifting your nutrition. Okay. Now, what windows of time do you think you can eat in? That's Mm -hmm. all we're going to do. We're going to eat according to your non-negotiable schedule, okay? And then we're going to try to light it up. We're going to light up your metabolism again. We're going to fire up those hunger signals because I want you to wake up at some point and feel hungry, whether that's 7 a.m. or 10 a.m. And there can be advantages to that for someone that has diabetes. For me, I want to make sure that my blood sugar is in a really stable place in the morning before I start eating. It's like the way I want to start my day. You want to start your day with a workout in the world of diabetes. We want to start our day with blood sugar in range, (laughs) you know, in a healthy range for me, it will be um, probably below 150, somewhere between 80 and 150 is where I want to be before I start eating. Eating, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I can then manage throughout. It increases my ability to be successful throughout the rest of the day and also to time my workouts. One day a week, I teach I teach indoor cycling at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. The rest of the time, I don't work out that early. So I have a little bit of a different protocol on Saturday 
than I do the rest of the week is to my timing of nutrition and the guide that my CGM is and what it's telling me I should do. And CGMs can be off. Mm-hmm. In fact, just last Tuesday night during class, I had my CGM give me a false reading and kind of mess things up. And that has not ever happened in 10 years of me teaching. Mm-hmm. So there are adventures that come in, right? But it's um, looking at the bigger picture of things, what is really going to help me become more successful and timing of nutrition certainly is part of that, just as much as timing of exercise and the quality of our food. It all factors together. Yeah. How do you manage if like your CGM is off telling you that you, I guess you were in ra- saying you were in range, but actually you might've been too low and felt like it was too low. Yeah. It gave me a false reading at the beginning that my blood sugar was higher than mm. I expected. And it dropped me like a rock during class. Um, and it, it, it's, it's interesting how these things can happen. The way that I, I look at this and that I'll coach people into thinking is, can you at least answer why that happened? Answer, find an answer, get the answer for why something happens that you don't expect with your blood sugar. And we'll learn from it because it needs to become something predictable or it's just troubleshooting. And why did this happen in the first place? I know exactly why it happened in the first place, but it happened a lot faster than I expected it to. Mm-hmm. So um, something in diabetes also is being really aggressive, particularly in type one diabetes is that what CGMs can do for people that can be, it's a bit of a warning sign that we have to be really careful with is there's a term called rage bolusing. And a bolus is a fast, you know, fast acting input of, of insulin. It's, it's the fast acting mealtime insulin that works quicker. And it has this, you know, 90 minutes, it's going to be at full blast. So we have 90 minutes pretty much before that fast acting insulin does its, does its job. And what a CGM shows us is if blood sugar continues to elevate and it like keeps going, if someone's given themselves a little dose of insulin to try to slow that correction, it's a correction shot. They're trying to slow the rate of that blood sugar increasing down. And so they give themselves a little bit of insulin. There's nothing wrong with that. It happens. You have to give correction doses and clearly hormones, stress. There are other things that can affect blood sugar elevating besides food. But what can happen is that CGM continues to rise because CGM t- shows us on the graph that our blood sugar continues to rise. So it's not uncommon for people with type one to freak out and take more insulin mm-hmm. during that 90 minute window where that first dose is still doing the work. So then mm-hmm. what happens is you come yeah. flying down. You have way too much insulin on board. Now you're overeating to compensate. So talk about relationship with food and that, right? Like, how many, how many times could something like that happen before someone has a meltdown Yeah, because they're taking insulin to try to prevent this spike that the technology is showing us. And then you have to overeat to correct the fact that you have too much insulin on board. Those are the moments that for me are a priority to prevent from happening just in my own self-management. And I think for a lot of women, they need to take that pretty seriously too, because of what that can do to your heart, your mind, the way that you're thinking about things. And who are you trying to do it for? You're doing it for the numbers. You're doing it to try to present with an A1C that's just rocking. That's like way lower than people with even pre-diabetes have, which isn't the goal. The goal is consistency. That's what keeps a healthy body going. So that's where your balance is, is being able to troubleshoot 
know what your exercise protocol is. That's something that I've developed that I really love working with people on is what is your exercise protocol? Let's look at what will work for you. And then you can make informed decisions going forward. And yeah, you might screw up every once in a while, but if you can answer, you have an answer for how that screw up happened, you'll be able to continue doing what you're doing without fault. I'll have more successful days than moments where, like I said, it was the first time in 10 years where I went, whoops, <laughs> I know exactly how that happened. I will not be doing that again. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's just the, it's the way of type one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a big lesson, a big curve, you know, learning curve. Um, mm. But again, determination, right? Type one determination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to keep going somehow. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about our retreat. <laughs> so uh, I'm very, very excited that you're coming and uh, that you'll be giving a win- wonderful workshop. And I love that you are tapping into the um, energetics of food. So going a little bit um, deeper into the esoteric, but still quite linked to the biology of our body, which is beautiful because a lot of people don't have this uh, mind body soul connection but we are both we are all three and it's nice that we can actually really go deeper into that so yeah let's just give people a little rundown about what they can expect from you on the retreat in portugal yeah a little taste so um so everyone listening chantal got me so excited she asked me about this podcast and I, i saw that she was cooking up this retreat and i was like oh my gosh i've got to share with her my idea for this because i really want to run this workshop and I need, need just needed the right setting to to do this in. And I think um, Portugal and and what it has to offer at that location is the perfect place to connect the um, energetic connection of to plant based nutrition, which is the title of my workshop. And what I mean by this is the energetic connection to plant based nutrition is a lot of what we talked about today is that there's more than there's more to eating than just digesting. And as it moves through our body, we're observing nutrition into every organ of our body, every cell, there is work going on. Our nourishment is a big deal. And then how we are using that food is what enriches our life. But there's also a connection to mental health and our emotions when we eat. They can put us into a place of the state of our health and to the whatever barriers and challenges that we have. Now, if we think a little deeper about this and we are meditating, we are trying to connect to what stresses us out. We are trying to soothe our levels of anxiety is if you go to a meditation class, they might start talking about the chakras. And this is something I started reading up about a few years ago. And I really got to thinking about how, how beautiful it is that the seven chakras throughout the body align with parts of our body where there can be dysfunction. And if we focus on these areas of the body where there can be dysfunction, certainly like in meditation, if we're thinking about the root chakra or the solar plexus is something that I really focus on, these the three lower chakras, the first three are where a lot of dysfunctions can happen in the body. What's amazing when we look at this is if we look at the top four, there's so much going on in relation to the lower three. It is all connected. The way that we think and our thoughts are so powerful. So could we possibly use nourishment to not just heal the dysfunctions in our body as they relate to chronic disease, but to breathe into these areas of our body and meditation also to try to heal them from an emotional perspective. And there is a connection to that. I think it's so, so, so beautiful because mind, body, spirit, this whole thing goes together. There isn't going to be one without uh, the other in the future of health, in my opinion. They all have to start working together or we're going to stay exactly where we are. And this is the place where we can 
start talking about that. So whether you are in a place of prevention, maybe you have diabetes like I do, or you're trying to reverse the resistance, this is going to be relevant to you. If you want to get outside and breathe in some nature, you want to have some movement, you want a team around you. We have a killer team of people to offer so much and complement with what we'd be looking at from a science perspective. I have got all this evidence to support how we can support our body to heal from a nutrition perspective. But if we can put the emotional breath work on top of that, we're going to be pretty powerful creatures. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do it. It's going to be an awesome workshop. Um, I'm, I, I, what I look forward to is the people that are going to like, who are we going to meet? Who yeah. are we going to meet? Are you going to be our person? <laughs> people listening to this right now, are you going to join us? This is going to be a life changer for all of us. And let's, let's go. What are we waiting for? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. I, I just knew that it was going to work. And I, I just knew that it was going to be perfect uh, in alignment with everything that we are going to offer, because you and I have um, a very similar view of how even retreats should be um, focused on, you know, having that healing part, that healing particle, like launching people into a journey of self-discovery and not just a place where they go for a week, relax, and then they go home and forget everything. It's where they actually yeah. get get tools and they go home and they know how to use them. So um, that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I, I really invited my favorite people. Like I have a doctor, Doc, who was my GP in London when I first moved there. And he had to leave the NHS because he's so holistic and they were always getting him upset because he would spend too much time with these patients you believe that i know i got in trouble for that too it's amazing (laughs) you get the lecture and you're you're doing too good of a job with people stop yeah five minutes five minutes do you get that (laughs) to prescribe the antibiotics yeah uh so (sighs) he could uh yeah he had to leave and go into private practice and then um we have marie who's coming for healing you know sound healing and we are frequencies. So everything that you talked about from the food to the practices that we have to our thoughts, everything as a frequency is so powerful and important. Um, interestingly, even, you know, pathogens have frequencies. A lot of people can heal from the flu just by doing a lot of sound healing and, um, and frequency therapy because everything has got a frequency. So if you tap into that, you can get rid of ailments. So it's very powerful. I mean, one, one day I'm quite sure we'll find that even to support autoimmune disease, frequency is going to be a very powerful thing to do. And I probably, I, I'm sure people already use it in some some level, but of course um, we have to find out these things slowly because things that are not mainstream are going to be harder to find. Um, I know that they're experimenting with cell, uh, stem cell therapy for uh, for type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes too that are insulin dependent. But in the US, for example, it's all experimental, so it would cost somebody upwards of $250,000. But then you can go to Panama and do a medical retreat or medical holidays, they call them. Um, and you can do it for like 50 grand. Um, oh boy. But it's still unaffordable for a lot of people. But, you know, it's it's crazy, right? That uh, things that are, because you can't patent your own cells. That's the thing. So big pharma is going to make a problem, yeah. uh, big profit out of it. Well, you know, with, with food, exercise, sound healing, meditation, yoga, these are ancient practices that are being modernized. Mm. I find humor in that. We're looking at the past. 
to make ourselves better in the present. And we're going to end up, it's like fashion repeats itself. There's this reinvention and we, we're still questioning this. Um, I think there's a, there's a history section in my book. I love history and going back into the history of 2000 years ago and the Greeks perspective on nutrition and, and this plants heal. They've had this plants heal perspective for a really long time. And we're coming back to this and we're, we're actually questioning it. We're actually mm-hmm. questioning how a nutrient rich diet could be healing your body. I'm, I'm like, what are we, what are we doing? What yeah. I, I'm astounded by some of the arguments that are out there. And I realize that a lot of those arguments against it, somebody's making money off of that. Somebody wants their 10 minutes of fame on Instagram. You know, somebody wants to just it, asinine ideas are loud. They speak loud. Mm. And if we keep coming back to the true nature of here's what we're learning. Here's what we've been doing for a long time. Here's the cycle of what works and what doesn't work and how we've been repeating this, you know, lessons of insanity and trying to do the same thing over and over again. That's never really working. But if we look at the history of where have we been successful as a society and look at the collection of what we've got here at the retreat, the collection of what's so beautiful about this is there's science here that meets the art of healing. Yeah. Those things can come together and people get to choose. What does that look like for them? Yeah. You know, if acupuncture is not your thing, maybe massage really, really works for you. Spin class isn't your thing. Yoga and getting outside in nature. Absolutely. That's a personality alignment. That's yeah. what it's all about is this alignment. I think with, with our retreat, there's going to be an aligning of this is what makes sense. Yeah. And um, let's get a little bit weird if it's something you've never done before. <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to ask your last last question. Okay. I promise. I mean, I'm sure we went over time. I don't even know. I got lost into this conversation. But um, <laughs> I know you have a thing against puddings. So yesterday, <laughs> I'm going oh, to no. tell the story. Yes. I. So I'm working on these recipes, right? Because um, I will create the recipes and then we have a chef that is going to, she's beautiful. I love her. Um, but she, so, so I'm like, okay, well, I want desserts that are whole foods. That's the whole point of the retreat. So I now love chickpeas be, even more than I thought I would, because I always ate them as savory food, but I discovered that I made a killer fudgy chocolate cake. Wait, you made chocolate cake out of beans. I'm going to dig into that. (laughs) Out of chickpeas. They're beautiful. Fantastic. It's the best thing ever. And I noticed that I'm sure other people have done it, but you know, I'm just thinking, I I just made this. And and then when I was blending it all together, you can also eat it without cooking it as a pudding. And so my dilemma now is that I know you don't like puddings. So can I still have that on the retreat? Oh my goodness. You know, I could be talked into that. Okay. I could be talked into that. Yeah. It's like, didn't you do like a tort? It was a chocolate, like a flourless chocolate. Yes. And that's exactly it. And that's the same Mm. kind of, and I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Even as a, like, you know, a, a little, like a pudding, you don't have to actually cook it. And uh, because the chickpeas are already cooked, but there's a difference. A pudding, so a pudding cup in the States, certainly, God help any other country that has this disgusting product. But in the States, this pudding cup, this stuff that comes out of this vanilla mucus that comes out of that. Oh, this is not a snack for it's so it's dairy. It's nutrient poor. It's just slop. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it is one of the most popular foods with little kids. And it, oh, and yes, I, yeah. I, so I was given this in the hospital and I have a kind of this trauma association to pudding because when I was 11 years old, they gave me these pudding cups and vanilla wafers and they call this health food in the hospital. And this is what they're giving to me as a kid that just got diagnosed with diabetes. And here I am counting carbohydrates, but I'm not learning about healthy food, but here are these pudding cups. And my association with pudding is like being a little kid admitted in the hospital. But if you're going to give me chocolate pudding from chickpeas, and it's beautiful and it smells good and I know it's in it. I'm going to, I'm not going to refuse right, that. I can, I can change my brain. I can, okay. I can change. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> so I wanted to end with that. Make sure that we don't disappoint you with the food. <laughs> no way. I think that's what people should know about the retreat is you will not go hungry. Um, and, you know, even then, maybe I want to put it in my oatmeal. Maybe I want to put a little bit of that, you know, I want to drizzle some of that pudding and use it as a sauce. So I can, I can play with it. Totally. <laughs> cool. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lauren. That was so much fun. So educational, so informative. I really loved it. And um, I think everyone will really enjoy this. I hope so. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, and uh, reach out if you have questions. Of course, Chantal and I are here. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the retreat. Yeah. And I'll put all your information in the show notes so people can actually reach out to you perfectly. So yeah, thanks so, so much. Until <laughs> next you. time. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, everyone, for staying on for this episode. I really hope you learned so much. Now, if you want to know more about Lauren, into the show notes, I have all the links to her website as well as her fantastic book. Please get a copy. It is such a brilliant, brilliant read, but also, and, and very real, you know, but also very educational. So I really hope you get to check it out as well as please share feedback about this episode. Once again, we really thrive when you tell us what you want and how you feel about what we're sharing so that we can keep on growing the best way possible. And again, if you want to join us on the retreat in the show notes, you'll have all the details. Please do check it out and we'll look, we look forward to seeing you there. Bye.